We have a special um, excerpt that Gopal Champaprabhu will read about uh, Prabhupada and his purpose of coming to Vrindavan that he heard this morning in Bhagavatam class. Go ahead. Go ahead on. <clears throat> Hare Krishna. So this morning uh, I went to Vrindavan his grace, Sutakirti Prabhu was giving class. He was uh, Prabhupada's personal servant for like two years, I think. Around that. So, he made a couple points that he made, he made a couple points that um, reminded me or reconfirmed how happy Prabhupada is of this program that we're doing here. So, Prabhupada said well, Shutakiti said, Prabhupada, Prabhupada um, asked us, what was the purpose of coming to Vrindavan? Prabhupada said, to hear. Every day Prabhupada had us read out loud in his room. Two weeks before coming to Vrindavan, he told Vrindavan to hear Nectar of, Nectar of Devotion. This is 1972. Um, he said, Pradyuma, you'll read out loud, and I'll stop you periodically and make commentary. Um... Then he also said, he said, you can, you can go and see everything you want, but if you're not hearing, what is the use? What are you actually seeing? And, and then he said, the, reading, Prabhupada, reading Srila Prabhupada's books is everything for us. And so, what was your conclusion? My conclusion is that the program we're doing here in Govardhan is fully authorized by Srila Prabhupada. <laughs> Continuing with Krishna, the Supreme Personality of Godhead, we're taking up at chapter 76, the battle between Shalva and members of the Yadu dynasty. Welsh... While Shukadev Goswami was narrating various activities of Lord Krishna and playing the role of an ordinary human being, he also narrated the history of the battle between the dynasty of Yadu and a demon of the name Shalva, who had managed to possess a wonderful airship named Sauba. King Shalva was a great friend of Shishupal's. When Shishupal went to marry Rukmini, Shalva was one of the members of the bridegroom's party. In the fight between the soldiers of the Yadu dynasty and the kings of the opposite side, Shalva was defeated by the soldiers of the Yadu dynasty. But despite his defeat, he made a promise before all the kings that he would in the future rid the world of all the members of the Yadu dynasty. Since his defeat in the fight during the marriage of Rukmini, he had maintained within himself an unforgettable envy of Lord Krishna, and he was, in fact, a fool because he had promised to kill Krishna. <laughs> Usually such foolish demons take shelter of a demigod like Lord Shiva to execute their ulterior plans. And so in order to get strength, Shalva took ref refuge 
at the lotus feet of Lord Shiva. He underwent a severe type of austerity during which he would eat no more than a handful of ashes daily. Lord Shiva, the husband of Parvati, is generally very merciful and he is very quickly satisfied if someone undertakes severe austerities to please him. So after continued austerities by Shalva for one year, Lord Shiva became pleased with him and asked him to beg for the fulfillment of his desire. Shalva begged from Lord Shiva the gift of an airplane, which would be so strong that it could not be destroyed by any demigod, demon, human being, Gandharva, or Naga, or even any Rakshasa. Moreover, he desired that the airplane be able to fly anywhere and everywhere he would like to pilot it, and be specifically very dangerous and fearful to the dynasty of the Yadus. Lord Shiva immediately agreed to give him the benediction, and Shalva took the help of the demon Maya to manufacture this iron airplane, which was so strong and formidable that no one could crash it. It was a very big machine, almost like a big city, and it could fly so high and at such a great speed that it was almost impossible to see, so there was no question of attacking it. It appeared to be almost covered with darkness, yet the pilot could fly it anywhere and everywhere. Having acquired such a wonderful airplane, Shalva flew it to the city of Dwarka because his main purpose in obtaining the airplane was to attack the city of the Yadus, toward whom he maintained a constant feeling of animosity. Shalva thus attacked the city of Dwarka from the sky, and he also surrounded the city by a large number of infantry. The soldiers on the surface attacked the beautiful spots of the city. They began to the city gates, the palaces, and skyscraper houses, the high walls around the city, and the beautiful spots where people would gather for recreation. While the soldiers attacked on the surface, the airplane began to drop big slabs of stone, tree trunk tree trunks, thunderbolts, poisonous snakes, and many other dangerous things. Shalva also managed to create such a strong whirlwind within the city that all of Dwarka became dark because of the dust that covered the sky. The airplane occupied by Shalva, the entire city of Dwarka, into distress equal to that caused on the earth long, long ago by the disturbing activities of Tripurasura. The inhabitants of Dwarkapuri became so harassed that they were not peaceful for even a moment. The great heroes of Dwarka city, headed by commanders such as Pradumna, counterattacked the soldiers and airplane of Shalva. When he saw the extreme distress of the citizens, Pradumna immediately arranged his soldiers and personally got up on a chariot, encouraging the citizens by assuring safety. Following his command, many warriors like Satyaki, Charudeshna, and Samba all young brothers of Pradumna, as well as Akura, Kritavarma, Banuvinda, Gada, Shuka, and Sar Sarana, all came out of the city to fight with Shalva. All of them were Maharatis, great warriors able to fight with thousands of men. All were fully equipped with necessary weapons and by hundreds and thousands of charioteers, elephants, horses, and infantry soldiers. Fierce fighting began between the two parties, exactly like the formerly carried that formally carried on between the demigods The fighting was severe, and whoever was the nature of the fight felt his bodily hairs stand on end. Pradumna immediately counteracted the mystic de demonstration occasioned by the airplane of Shalva, the king of Shauba. 
By the mystic power of the airplane, Shalva had created a darkness as dense as night, but Pradumna all of a sudden appeared like the rising sun. As with the rising of the sun, the darkness of night is immediately dissipated. With the appearance of Pradumna, the power exhibited by Shalva became null and void. Each of Pradumna's arrows had a golden feather at the end, and the shaft was fitted with a sharp iron head. By releasing 25 such arrows, Pradumna severely injured Shalva's commander-in-chief. He then released another 100 arrows toward the body of Shalva. After this, he pierced each and every soldier by releasing one arrow. He killed the chariot drivers by firing 10 arrows at each one of them, and he killed the carriers like the horses and elephants by releasing three arrows directed toward each, each one. When everyone present on the battlefield saw this wonderful feat of Pradumnas, the great fighters on both sides praised his acts of chivalry. But still, the plane occupied by Shalva was very mysterious. It was so extraordinary that sometimes many airplanes would appear to be in the sky, and sometimes there were apparently none. Sometimes the plane was visible and sometimes not visible, and the warriors of the Yadu dynasty were puzzled about the whereabouts of the peculiar airplane. Sometimes they would see the airplane on the ground, sometimes flying in the sky, sometimes resting on the peak of a and sometimes floating on the water. The wonderful airplane flew in the sky like a whirling firebrand. It was not steady even for a moment. But despite the mysterious maneuvering of the airplane, the commanders and soldiers of the Yadu dynasty would immediately rush toward Shalva, wherever he was present with his airplane and soldiers. The arrows released by the dynasty of the Yadus were as brilliant as the sun and as dangerous as the tongues of serpents. All the soldiers fighting on behalf of Shalva soon became distressed by the incessant release of arrows upon them by the heroes of the Yadu dynasty, and Shalva himself became unconscious from the attack of these arrows. The soldiers fighting on behalf of Shalva were also very strong, and the release of their arrows also harassed the heroes of the Yadu dynasty. But still the Yadus were so strong and determined that they did not move from their strategic positions. The heroes of the Yadu dynasty were determined either to die on the battlefield or to gain victory. They were confident that if they died in the fighting, they would attain a heavenly planet, and if they came out victorious, they would enjoy the world. The name of Shalva's commander-in-chief was Duman. He was very powerful, and although bitten by 25 of Perdumna's arrows, he suddenly attacked Pradumna with his fierce club and struck him so strongly that Pradumna became unconscious. Immediately there was a roaring. Now he is dead. Now he is dead. The force of the club on Pradumna's chest was very severe, and it appeared as though his chest had been torn asunder. Pradumna's chariot was being driven by the son of Daruka. According to military principles, the chariot driver and the hero on the chariot must cooperate during the fighting. As such, because it was the duty of the chariot driver to take care of the hero on the chariot during the dangerous and precarious fighting, Daruka's son removed Pradumna from the battlefield. Two hours later, in a quiet place, Pradumna regained consciousness, and when he saw that he was in a place other than the battlefield, he addressed the charioteer and condemned him. Oh, you have done the most abominable act. Why have you removed me from the battlefield? My dear charioteer, I've never heard that any of our family members was ever removed from the battlefield. None of them left the battlefield while fighting. By this removal, you have overburdened me with a great defamation. 
It will be said that I left the battlefield while fighting was going on. My dear charioteer, I must accuse you. You are a coward and an emasculator. Tell me, how can I go before my uncle Balaram and my father Krishna, and what shall I say before them? Everyone will talk about me and say that I fled from the fighting place, and if they inquire from me about this, what will be my reply? My sisters-in-law will play jokes upon me with sarcastic words. My dear hero, how have you become such a coward? How have you become such a eunuch? How have you become so low in the eyes of the fighters who oppose you? I think, my dear charioteer, that you have committed a great offense by removing me from the battlefield. <clears throat> the charioteer of Prajumna replied, My dear sir, I wish a long life for you. I think that I did nothing wrong, for it is the duty of the charioteer to help the fighter in the chariot when he is in a precarious condition. My dear sir, you are completely competent in the battlefield, but it is the duty of the charioteer and the warrior to protect each other in a precarious condition. I was completely aware of the principles of fighting, and I did my duty. The enemy all of a sudden struck you with his club so severely that you lost consciousness. You were in a dangerous position, surrounded by your enemies. Therefore, obliged to act as I did. Thus, and the Bhaktivedanta purport of the seventy-sixth chapter of Krishna, the battle between Shalva and members of the Yadu dynasty. Seventy-seven. Deliverance of Shalva. After talking with his charioteer, the son of Daraka, Prajumna could understand the real circumstances. <clears throat> Therefore, he refreshed himself by washing his mouth and hands. <laughs> and after arming himself properly with bows and arrows, he asked his charioteer to take him near the place where Shalva's commander-in-chief was standing. During the short absence of Prajumda from the battlefield, Juman, Shalva's commander-in-chief, had been taking over the positions of the soldiers of the Yadu dynasty. Appearing on the battlefield, Prajumna immediately stopped him and, smiling, shot eight arrows at him. With four arrows, he killed Juman's four horses and with one arrow, his chariot driver. With another arrow, he cut his bow in two. With another, he cut his flag to pieces. And with the last, he severed his head from his body. On the other, on the other fronts, heroes like Satyaki and Samba were killing the soldiers Shalva. The soldiers staying with Shalva in the airplane were also killed in the fighting, and they fell into the ocean. Each party began to strike the opposite party very severely in a fierce, dangerous battle that continued for 27 days without stopping. While the fight was going on in the city of Dwarka, Krishna was staying at Indraprastha with the Pandavas in King Yudhishthir. <clears throat> this fighting with Shalva took place after the Rajasuya Yagya that had been performed by King Yudhishthir and after the killing of Shishupal. 
When Lord Krishna understood that there was a great danger in the city of Dwarka, he took permission from the elder members of the family, especially from his aunt Kunti Devi, and started immediately for Dwarka. Lord Krishna began to think that while he was staying in Hastinapur with Balaram after the killing of Shishupal, Shishupal's men must have attacked Dwarka. On reaching, on reaching Dwarka, Lord Krishna saw that the whole city was greatly endangered. He placed Balaramji in a strategic position for the protection of the city, and he himself asked his charioteer, Dharaka, to prepare to start. He said, Dharaka, please immediately take me to where Shalva is staying. You may know that this Shalva is a very powerful, mysterious man. Fear him in the least. As soon as he got his orders from Lord Krishna, Dharaka had him seated on the chair and drove very quickly towards Shalva. The chariot of Lord Krishna was marked with the flag bearing the insignia of Garuda. And as soon as the soldiers and warriors of the Yadav dynasty saw the flag, they could understand that Lord Krishna was on the battlefield. By this time, almost all the soldiers of Shalva had been killed. But when Shalva saw that Krishna had come to the battlefield, he released a great, powerful weapon which flew through the sky with the sound like a great meteor. It was so bright that the whole sky was lit up by its presence. But as soon as Lord Krishna appeared, he tore the great weapon into hundreds and thousands of pieces by releasing his own arrows. Lord Krishna struck Shalva 16 arrows, and with showers of arrows, he overpowered the airplane just as the sun and a clear sky overpowers the whole sky by an unlimited number of molecules of sunshine. Wow. Shalva struck a severe blow to Krishna's left side where the, Lord where the Lord carried his bow, Sharnga. And as a result, the Sharnga bow fell from Lord Krishna's hand. This dropping of the bow was indeed wonderful. Great personalities and demigods who were observing the fighting between Shalva and Krishna were most perturbed. Claimed, alas, alas. Shalva thought that he had become victorious and with a roaring sound he addressed Lord Krishna as follows. You rascal Krishna. Kept Rukmini forcibly even in our presence. You baffled my friend Chishupal and married Rukmini yourself. And in the great assembly at King Yudhishthir's Rajasuya Yagya, while my friend Chishupal, absent-minded, you took an, an opportunity to kill him. <clears throat> Everyone thinks that you are a great fighter and that no one can conquer you. So now you'll have to prove your strength. I think that if you stand before me with my sharp arrows, I shall send you to a place wherefrom you will never return. To this, Krishna replied, Foolish Salva, sensically, you do not know that at the moment of death is already upon your head. Actual heroes 
do not talk much. They prove their prowess by practical exhibition of chivalrous activities. <clears throat> After Krishna in great anger struck Shava on the collarbone with his club so severely that Shava began to vomit blood and tremble as if he were going to collapse from severe cold. Before Krishna was able to strike him again, however, Shava became invisible by his mystic power. Within a few moments, a mysterious unknown man came before Lord Krishna. Crying loudly, he bowed down at the Lord's lotus feet and said to him, Since you are the most beloved son of your father, Vasudev, your mother, Deviki has sent me to inform you of the has arrested your father and taken him away by force. Just as a butcher mercilessly takes mercilessly mercilessly takes away an animal. <clears throat> when Lord Krishna heard this unfortunate news from the unknown man, unknown man, he at first became perturbed, just like an ordinary human being. His face showed signs of grief, and he began to cry in a piteous tone. How could that happen? My brother Lord Balaram is there, and it is impossible for anyone to conquer Balaramaji. He is in charge of Dwarka city, and I know he is always alert. How could Shalva possibly enter the city and arrest my father in the way? Whatever Shalva may be, his power is limited. So how could it be possible that he has conquered the strength of Balaramaji and taken away my father, arresting him as described by this man? Alas, destiny is, after all, very powerful. While Sri Krishna was thinking, while Sri Krishna was thinking like this, Shalva brought before him in custody a man exactly resembling Vasudev, his father. These were all creations of the mystic power of Shalva. Shalva addressed Krishna, You rascal Krishna, look, this is your father who has begotten you and by whose mercy you are still living. Now just see how I kill your father. If you have any strength, try to save him. The mystic, mystic juggler Shalva, speaking in this way before Lord Krishna, immediately cut off the head of the false Vasudev. Then without hesitation, he took away the dead body and got into his airplane. Lord Krishna, self-sufficient Supreme Personality of Godhead, yet because he was playing the role of a human being, he became very depressed for a moment. He had actually lost his father. But at the next moment, he could understand that the arrest and killing of his father were demonstrations of the mystic powers which shall from the demon Maya. Coming to his right consciousness, he could see that there was no messenger and no head of his father, but that Shalva had left his airplane, which was flying in the sky. He then began to think, slaying Shalva. Krishna's reaction is not a Krishna's reaction is a controversial point among great authorities and saintly persons. How could Krishna, the supreme personality of God, at the reservoir of all power and knowledge, be bewildered in such a way? Lamentation, agreement, and bewilderment are characteristics of conditioned souls. But how can such affect the person of the Supreme who is full of knowledge, power, and opulence. Actually, it is not 
at all possible that Lord Krishna was misled by the mystic jugglery of Shalva. He was displaying his pastime in playing the role of a human being. Great saintly persons and sages who are engaged in the devotional service of the lotus feet of Lord Krishna and who have thus achieved the greatest perfection of self-realization have transcended the bewilderments of the bodily concept of life. Lord Krishna is the ultimate goal of life for such saintly persons. How then could Krishna have been bewildered by the mystic jugglery of Shalva? The conclusion is that Lord Krishna's bewilderment was another opulence of his supreme personality. When Shalva thought that Krishna had been bewildered by his mystic representations, he became encouraged and began to attack the Lord with greater strength and energy by showering volleys of arrows upon him. But the enthusiasm of Shalva can be compared to the speedy march of moths into a fire. Lord Krishna, by hurling his arrows with unfathomable strength, injured Shalva, whose armor, bow, and jeweled helmet all scattered in pieces. With a crashing blow from Krishna's club, Shalva's wonderful airplane burst into pieces and fell into the sea. Shalva was very careful, and instead of crashing with the airplane, he managed to jump onto the land. He again rushed towards Lord Krishna. When Shalva ran swiftly to attack Krishna with his club, Lord Krishna cut off his hand, which fell to the ground with the club. Finally, deciding to kill him, the Lord took up his wonderful disc, which shone like the brilliant sun at the time of the dissolution of the material creation. When Lord Krishna stood up with his disc to kill Shalva, he appeared just like a mountain with a red sun rising over it. Lord Krishna cut off Shalva's head, and the head with its earrings and helmet fell to the ground. Shalva was thus killed in the same way that Vritrasura was killed by Indra, the king of heaven. When Shalva, when Shalva was killed, all his soldiers and followers cried, Alas! Alas! While Shalva's men were thus crying, the demigods from the heavenly planet showered flowers on Krishna and announced the victory by beating drums and blowing bugles. At that very moment, other friends of Shishupal, such as Dantavakra, appeared on the scene to fight with Krishna and avenge the death of Shishupal and others. When Dantavakra appeared before Lord Krishna, he was extremely angry. Thus ends the Bhaktivedanta purport of the 77th chapter of Krishna, the deliverance of Shalva. The killing of Dantavakra, Vidhuratha, and Romaharshana. After the, after the demise of Shishupal, Shalva and Poundraka, a foolish demoniac king of the name Dantavakra wanted to kill Krishna to avenge the death of his friend Shalva. He became so agitated that he appeared on the battlefield without the proper arms and ammunition and without even a chariot. His only weapon was his great anger, which was red hot. He carried only a club in his hand, but he was so powerful that when he moved, everyone felt the earth tremble. When Lord Krishna saw him approaching in a very heroic mood, he immediately got down from his chariot for it was a rule of military etiquette that fighting should take place only between equals. Knowing that Dantavakra was alone and armed with only a club, Lord Krishna responded similarly and prepared himself by taking his club in his hand.
When Krishna appeared before him, Vakra's heroic march was immediately stopped, just as the great furious waves of the ocean are stopped by the beach. At that time, Dantravakra, who is the king of Karusha, stood firmly with his club and spoke to Lord Krishna as follows. It is a great pleasure and fortunate opportunity, Krishna, that we are seeing each other face to face. My dear Krishna, after all, you are my maternal cousin, and I should not kill you in this way, but unfortunately you have committed a great mistake by killing my friend Shalva. Moreover, you are not satisfied by killing my friend. I know that you want to kill me also. Because of your determination, I must kill you by tearing you to pieces with my club. Krishna, although you are my relative, you are foolish. You are our greatest enemy, so I must kill you today, just as a person removes a boil on his body by a surgical operation. I am always very much obliged to my and I therefore consider myself indebted to my dear friend Shalva. I can liquidate my indebtedness to him only by killing you. As the caretaker of an elephant tries to control the animal by striking it with his trident, Dantavakra tried to control Krishna simply by speaking strong words. After finishing his vituperation, he struck Krishna on the head with his club and made a roaring sound like a lion. But Krishna, although struck strongly by the club of Dantravakra, did not move even an inch, nor did he feel any pain. Taking his Kaumodaki club and moving very skillfully, Krishna struck Dantravakra's chest so fiercely that Dantravakra's heart split in twain. As a result, Dantavakra began to vomit blood, his hair scattered, and he fell to the ground, spreading his hands and legs. Within only a few minutes, all that remained of Dantravakra was a dead body on the ground. After the death of Dantravakra, just as at the time of Shishupal's death, in the presence of all the persons standing there, a small particle of spiritual effulgence came out of the demon's body and very wonderfully merged into the body of Lord Krishna. Dantavakra had a brother named Viduratha, who was overwhelmed with grief at Dantavakra's death. Out of grief and anger, Viduratha was very heavily, and just to avenge the death of his brother, he appeared before Lord Krishna with a sword and shield in his hands. He wanted to kill Krishna immediately. When Lord Krishna understood that Viduratha was looking for the opportunity to strike him with his sword, he employed his Sudarshan disc, his razor-sharp disc, and without delay cut off Vidurata's head with its helmet earrings. That's the fastest demon kill in the book. In this way, after killing Shalva and destroying his airplane and then killing Dantravakra and Viduratha, Lord Krishna at last entered the city, Dwarka. It would not have been possible for anyone but Krishna to kill these and therefore all the demigods from heaven and the human of the globe were glorifying him. Great sages and ascetics, the denizens of Gandharva planets, the denizens known as Vidyadras, Vasuki, and the Mahanagas, the beautiful angels, the inhabitants of Pitraloka, and the Yakshas, the Kinaras, and the Charanas, all showered flowers upon him and sang songs of his victory in great jubilation. Decorating the entire city very festively, the citizens of Dwarka held a great celebration and when Lord Krishna passed, members of the Vrishni dynasty and all the heroes of the Yadu dynasty followed him with great respect. 
These are some of the transcendental pastimes of Lord Krishna, the master of all mystic power and the lord of the cosmic manifestation of all manifestations. Those who are fools, who are like animals, sometimes think that Krishna is defeated, but actually he is the supreme personality of Godhead and no one can defeat him. He is he always remains victorious over everyone. He alone is God, and all others are his subservient order carriers. Once upon a time, Lord Balaram heard that an arrangement was being made for a fight between the two rival parties in the Kuru dynasty, one headed by Duryodhana and the other by the Pandas. He did not like the idea, and he tried to act as a to stop the fight. Finding it impossible and not wishing to either party visiting various holy places of pilgrimage. First of all, visited the place of pilgrimage known as Chaitra. He took his bath there and he pacified the local brahmins and offered oblations to the demigods, pitas, great sages, and people in general. It's with Vedic ritualistic ceremonies. That is the Vedic method of visiting holy places. After this, accompanied by some respectable brahmanas, he decided to visit different places on the bank of the river Saraswati. He gradually visited such places as Prituraka, Bindusara, Titakupa, Sudarshana Tirtha, Vishala Tirtha, Brahmatirtha, and Chakratirtha. Besides these, he also visited all the holy places on the bank of the Saraswati River running toward the east. After this, he visited all the principal holy places on the bank of the Yamuna and on the bank of the Ganges. Thus, he gradually came to the holy place known as Naimisharanya. Naimisharanya is still existing in India and in ancient times, it was especially used for the meetings of great sages and saintly persons with the aim of understanding spiritual life and self-realization. When Lord Balaram visited that place, there was a great sacrifice being performed by a great assembly of transcendentalists to, to last thousands of years. When Lord Balaram arrived, all the participants in the meeting, great sages, ascetics, learned scholars, immediately arose from their seats and welcomed him with great honor and respect. Some offered him by standing up and then paying obeisances. And those who were elderly great sages and brahmanas offered him blessings. After this formality, Lord Balaram was offered a suitable seat and everyone worshipped him. Everyone in the assembly stood up in the presence of Balaram because they knew him to be the supreme personality of Godhead. Education or learning means to understand the supreme personality of Godhead. Therefore, 
Although Lord Balaram appeared on the earth as a Tetria, all the Brahmanas and sages stood up because they knew who Lord Balaram was. Unfortunately, after being worshipped and seated in his place, Balaram saw Ramaharshan, the disciple of Vyasadeva, the literary incarnation of Godhead, still sitting on the Vyasasana. He had neither gotten up from his seat nor offered him respects. Because he was seated on the Vyasasana, he foolishly thought himself greater than the Lord. Therefore he did not get down from his seat or, or bow down before the Lord. Lord Balaram then considered the history of Ramaharshan. He was born in a Sufi family, or a mixed family, born of a Brahmin woman and a Chatriya man. Therefore, although Ramaharshan, Ramaharshan considered Balaram a Chatriya, he should not have remained sitting on a higher seat. According to his position by birth, he should not have accepted the higher sitting position. <clears throat> because many learned brahmanas and sages were present. Lord Balaram also observed that Ramaharshan not only refused to come down from his exalted seat, but did not even stand up and offer his respects when Balaramaji entered the assembly. Lord Balaram did not like the audacity <clears throat> of Ramaharshan and becoming very angry at him, declared from his seat, this man, Ramaharshan, is so impotent that he has accepted a higher seat than that of all the respectable Brahmanas present here, although he was born in the degraded Pratiloma family. When a person is seated on the Vyasasana, he does not generally have to stand to receive a particular person <clears throat> entering the assembly. But in this case, <clears throat> the situation was different because Lord Baladev is not an ordinary human being. Therefore, although Ramaharshan Sutta was voted to the Vyasasan by all the Brahmanas, he should have followed the behavior of other learned sages and Brahmanas present and should have known that Lord Balaram is the supreme personality of Godhead. Respects are always offered, respects are always due him even though such respects can be avoided in the case of an ordinary man. The appearance of Krishna and Balaram is especially meant for re-establishment of the religious principles. <clears throat> Oops. As stated in the Bhagavad Gita, the highest religious principle is to surrender to the Supreme Personality of Godhead. Srimad Bhagavatam also confirms that the topmost perfection of religion is to be engaged in the devotional service of the Lord. When Lord Balaram saw that Ramaharshan Sutta did not understand <clears throat> the highest principle of religion, in spite of his having studied all the Vedas, he certainly could not support his position. Ramaharshan had been given the chance to become a perfect brahmana. But because of his ill behavior in his relationship with the Supreme Personality of Godhead, his low birth was immediately remembered. Ramaharshan Sutta had been given the position of a brahmana. 
but he had not been born family of a Brahmana. He had been born in a Pratiloma family. According to the Vedic concept, there are two kinds of mixed family heritage called Anuloma and Pratiloma. When a male is united with a female of a lower caste, the offspring is called Anuloma. But when a male unites with a woman of a higher caste, the offspring is called Pratiloma. Ramaharshan Sutta belonged to, the, to a Pratiloma family because his father was a Chatriya and his mother a Brahmana. Because Ramaharshan's transcendental realization was not perfect, Lord Balaram remembered his Pratiloma heritage. The idea is that any man may be given a chance to become a Brahmana, but if he properly uses the position of a Brahmana without actual realization, then his elevation to the Brahminical position is not valid. After seeing the efficiency of realization in Ramaharshan Sutta, Lord Balaram decided to chastise him for being puffed up. Lord Balaram therefore said, This man is liable to be awarded the death punishment, because although he has the good qualification, a disciple of Lord Vyasadeva, and although he has studied all the Vedic literature from this exalted personality, he was not submissive in the presence of the Supreme Personality of Godhead. As stated in the Bhagavad Gita, a person who is actually a Brahmana and is very learned must automatically become very gentle. But although Ramaharshan Sutta was very learned, and had been given the chance to become a Brahmana, he had not become From this we can understand that one who was puffed up by material acquisitions acquired the gentle behavior befitting a Brahmana. The learning of such a person is as good as a valuable jewel decorating the hood of a serpent. Despite the valuable jewel, on the hood, a serpent is still a serpent and is as fearful as an ordinary serpent. A person does not become meek and humble. All his studies of the Vedas and Puranas and his knowledge of the Shastras are simply outward dress, like the costume of a theatrical artist dancing on the stage. Lord Balaram considered, I have appeared in order to chastise false persons who are internally impure, but externally pose themselves as very and religious. My killing of such persons is proper to check them from further sinful activity. Lord Balaram had avoided taking part in the battle of Kukshetra, and yet, because of his position as an incarnation, the reestablishment of religious principles was his prime duty. Considering these points, he killed Ramaharshan Sutta simply by striking him with a kusha straw, which was nothing but a blade of grass. If someone questions how Lord Balaram could kill Ramaharshan Sutta simply by striking him with a blade of kusha grass, the answer is given in Srimad Bhagavatam by the use of the word Prabhu, Master. 
The Lord's position is always transcendental, and because he is confident, he can act as he likes without being obliged to follow the material laws and principles. Thus it was possible for him to kill Ramahashan Sutta simply by striking him with a blade of kusha grass. At the death of Ramaharshan Sutta, everyone present became much aggrieved and cried out, Alas, alas! Although all the brahmanas and sages present knew Lord Balaram to be the Supreme Personality of Godhead, they did not hesitate to protest the Lord's action. They humbly submitted, Our dear Lord, we think that your action is not in line with the religious principles. Dear Lord Yadunandana, we may inform but we brahmanas posted Ramaharshan Sutta on that exalted position for the duration of this great sacrifice. He was seated on the Vyasasana by our election. See? Election. <laughs> Say what? He was seated on the Vyasasana by our election. And when one is seated on the Vyasasana, it is improper for him to stand up and receive a person. Moreover, we awarded Romaharshan Sutta an undisturbed duration of life. Under the circumstances, since your Lordship has killed him without knowing all these facts, we think that your action is equal to killing a Brahmana. Dear Lord, deliverer of all fallen souls, we know for certain that you are the knower of all Vedic principles. You are the master of all mystic powers. Therefore, the Vedic injunctions cannot ordinarily be applied to you. But we respectfully advise you to show your causeless mercy upon others by kindly atoning for this killing of Romaharshan Sutta. We do not, however, suggest what kind of act you should perform to atone for killing him. We simply suggest that you adopt some method of atonement so that others may follow your action. What is done by a great personality is followed by the ordinary man. The Lord replied, Yes, I must do this action, which may have been proper for me, but it is proper for others. Therefore, my duty to execute a suitable act of atonement enjoined in the authorized scriptures. Simultaneously, I can also give this Romaharshan Sutta life again, with a span of long duration, sufficient strength and full power of the senses. Not only this, but if you desire, I shall be glad to award him anything else you may ask. I shall be very glad to grant all these wounds to fulfill your desires. This statement by Lord Balaram definitely confirms that the Supreme Personality of God is free to act in any way. Although his killing of Harshan Sutta may be considered improper, he could immediately counteract it with greater profit to all. <coughs> Therefore, one should not imitate the actions of the Supreme Personality of Godhead. One should simply follow the instructions of the Lord. All the great learned sages present realized that although they considered the action of Lord Balaram, the Lord was immediately able to compensate with greater prophets. Not wanting to detract from the mission of the Lord in killing Romaharshan Sutta, our dear Lord, the uncommon use of your kusha weapon to kill Romaharshan Sutta may remain as it is, because you just brought back to life again. At the same time, your lordship may remember that we sages and brahmanas voluntarily gave him long life. Therefore, the benediction should not be nullified. Thus, the request 
of all the learned Brahmanas in the assembly was ambiguous because they wanted to keep intact their benediction that Romaharshan Sutta would continue to live until the end of the great sacrifice, but at the same time they did not want to nullify Balaram's killing him. The Supreme Personality of God had therefore solved the problem in a manner befitting his exalted position. He said, Because the Son is produced from the body of the Father, the Vedas enjoin that the Son is the Father's representative. Therefore, that Ugrashava Sutta, the son of Romaharshan Sutta, should henceforth take his father's and continue the discourses on the Puranas. And because you wanted Romaharshan to have a long duration of life, this benediction was transferred to his son. The son, Ugrashava, will therefore have all the facilities you offered, a long duration of life in a good and healthy body with no disturbances and full strength of all the senses. Lord Balaram then implored all the sages and Brahmins that aside from the benediction offered to the son of Rokhashan, they should ask from him any other benediction, and he would be prepared to fulfill it immediately. The Lord thus placed himself in the position of ordinary Kshatriya and informed the sages that he did not know in what way he could atone for his killing of Romaharshan, but suggest he would be glad to accept. The Brahmanas could understand the purpose of the Lord, and thus they suggested that he atone in special to them. They said, Our dear Lord, there is a very powerful demon of the name Bhavala. He is the son of Ilvala, and he visits the sacrifice every fortnight on the full moon and moonless days and creates a great disturbance to the discharge of our sacrifice. O descendant of the Dasharha family, we all request you to kill this demon. We think that if you kindly kill him, that will be your atonement on our behalf. The demon occasionally comes here and profusely throws upon us contaminated impure things like pus, blood, stool, urine, and wine. He pollutes this sacred place by showering such filth upon us. After killing Balaval, you may continue touring all the sacred places of pilgrimage for 12 months, and in that way you will com be completely freed from all contamination. That is our prescription. Thus ends the Bhaktivedanta purport of the 70th chapter killing of Dantravakra, Vidhurata, and Romaharshan. Chapter 79. The liberation of Balvala and Lord Balaram's TV Kuring, the Sacred Places. The liberation of Balval and Lord Balaram's touring. No, Takuring. <laughs> the liberation of Balval and Lord Balaram's touring the sacred places. Lord Balaram prepared himself to meet the demon Balval. At the time when the demon usually attacked the sacred appeared a great hailstorm. The whole sky 
covered with dust, and the atmosphere became surcharged with a filthy smell. Just after this, the mischievous demon, Balval, began to shower torrents of stool and urine and other impure substances on the arena of sacrifice. After this onslaught, the demon himself appeared with a great trident in his hand. He was a gigantic person, and his black body was like a huge mass of carbon. His hair, his beard, and his mustache appeared reddish like copper, and because of his great beard and mustache, his mouth appeared dangerous and fierce. As soon as he saw the demon, Lord Balaram prepared to attack him. He first considered how he could smash the great demon to pieces. Lord Balaram then called for his plow and club, and they immediately appeared before him. The demon Balval was flying in the sky, and at the first opportunity, Lord Balaram dragged him down with his plow and angrily smashed the demon's head with his club. Balaram's striking fractured the demon's forehead, making blood flow profusely. Screaming loudly, the demon, who had been such a great disturbance to the pious Brahmanas, fell to the ground like a great mountain with a red oxide peak being struck and smashed to the ground by a thunderbolt. <clears throat> the inhabitants of Naimisharanya, learned sages and brahmanas, became most pleased by seeing this to Lord Balaram. They offered their heartfelt blessings to the Lord and all agreed that none of Lord Balaram's attempts to do something would ever be The sages and brahmanas then performed a ceremonial bathing of Lord Balaram, just as the demigods bathe King Indra when he is victorious over the demons. The brahmanas and sages honored Lord Balaram by presenting him with a first-class new clothing and ornaments, and the garland of victory. This garland was the reservoir of all beauty and was everlasting. It was never to be dried up. After this incident, Lord Balaram took permission from the Brahmanas assembled at Naimisharanya and, accompanied by other Brahmanas, went to the bank of the river Kaushiki. After taking his bath in this holy place, he proceeded toward the river Sarayu, and visited the source of the river. On the bank of the Sarayu River, he gradually reached Prayag, where there is a confluence of three rivers, the Ganges, Yamuna, and Saraswati. Here he also took his bath, and then he worshipped in the local temples of the demigods, and as enjoined in the Vedic literature, offered oblations to the forefathers and sages. He gradually reached the ashram of the sage Pulaha and from there went to the rivers Gandaki and Gomati. After this he took bath in the river Vipasha. Then he gradually came to the bank of the Shona River. The Shona River is still running as one of the big rivers in Bihar province. <clears throat> he also took his bath there and performed the Vedic ritualistic ceremonies. He continued his travels and gradually the pilgrimage city of Gaya, where there is a celebrated Vishnu temple. According to the advice of Father Vasudev, he offered oblations 
to the forefathers in this Vish Vishnu temple. From there, he traveled to the delta of the Ganges, where the sacred river Ganges mixes with the Bay of Bengal. This sacred place is called Ganga Sagara. And at the end of January, every year, there is still a great assembly of saintly persons. Just as there is an assembly of saintly persons in Prayag, every year called the Magmela Fair. After, after finishing his bathing and ritualistic ceremonies at Ganga Sagara, Lord Balaram proceeded toward the mountain known as Mahendra Parvata, where he met Parashuram, an incarnation of Lord Krishna, and offered him respect by bowing down before him. After this, Lord Balaram turned toward southern India and visited the banks of the river Godavari. <clears throat> Godavari. After taking his bath in the river Godavari and performing the necessary ritualistic ceremonies, he gradually visited the other rivers, the Vena, Pampa, and Bhimarati. On the bank of the river, on the bank of the river Bhimarati, is a deity called Swami Kartikeya. After visiting Kartikeya, Lord Balaram gradually proceeded to Shailapur, a pilgrimage city in the province of Maharashtra. Shailapur is one of the greatest districts in Maharashtra province. He then gradually proceeded toward Dvidvidesh. Uh, excuse me. He then gradually proceeded toward Dravidadesh. Southern India is divided into five parts called Dravida. Northern India is divided into five parts called Panchagoda. All the important Acharyas of the modern age, namely Shankaracharya, Ramanujacharya, Madhacharya, Vishnu Swami, and Nimbarka, advented themselves in the Dravidic provinces. Lord Chaitanya, however, appeared in Bengal, which is part of the five. The most important place of pilgrimage in southern India, or Dravida, is Venkatama, commonly known as Balaji. After visiting this place, Lord Balaram proceeded toward Vishnu Kanchi, and there, from there he proceeded on the bank of the Kaveri. While going to Vishnu Kanchi, he visited Shiva Kanchi, Lord Kaveri, then he gradually reached Rangakshetra. The biggest Vishnu temple in the world is in Rangakshetra, and the Vishnu deity there is celebrated as Ranganath. There is a similar temple of Ranganath in Vrindavan, although not as big as the temple in Rangakshetra, <clears throat> it is the biggest in Vrindavan. After visiting Rangakshetra, Lord Balaram gradually proceeded toward Madurai, commonly known as the Mathura of southern India. After visiting this place, he gradually proceeded toward Setubanda, the place where Lord Ramachandra constructed the stone bridge from India to Lanka, Salem. In this particularly holy place, Lord Balaram distributed 10,000 cows to the local Brahmana priests. 
It is the Vedic custom that when a rich visitor goes to any place of pilgrimage, he gives priests, houses, cows, ornaments, and garments as gifts of charity. This system of visiting places of pilgrimage and providing the local Brahmana priests with all necessities of life has greatly deteriorated in this age of the richer section of the population because of its degradation in Vedic culture is no longer attracted to by these places of pilgrimage and the Brahmana priests dependent on such visitors have also deteriorated in their professional duty of helping the visitors. These Brahmana priests in the places of pilgrimage are called Panda or Pandit. This means that they are were formerly very learned Brahmanas and used to guide the visitors in all details of the purpose of coming there. And thus, both the visitors and the priests benefited by mutual cooperation. It is clear from the description of Srimad Bhagavatam, Balaram was visiting the different places of pilgrimage. He properly followed the Vedic system. After distributing cows at Stubanda, Lord Balaram proceeded toward the Kritamala and the Tambrapani rivers. These two rivers are celebrated as sacred, and Lord Balaram bathed in them both. He then proceeded toward Malaya Hill. This hill is very great, and it is said to be one of seven peaks called the Malaya Hills. The great sage Augustya used to live there, and Lord Balaram visited him offered his respects by bowing down before him. After taking the sage's blessings, Lord Balaram, with the sage's permission, proceeded toward the Indian Ocean. The point of the cape known today as Cape Komarin is a big temple of Goddess Durga, who is known there as Kanyakumari. This temple of Kanyakumari was also visited by Lord Ramachandra, and therefore, we understood that the temple has been existing for millions of years. From there, Lord Balaram went on to visit the pilgrimage city as Palguna Tirtha, which is on the shore of the Indian Ocean or the Southern Ocean. Tirtha is celebrated because Lord Vishnu, in his incarnation of Ananta, is lying there. From Palguna Tirtha, Lord Balaram at another pil pilgrimage spot known as Panchapsara. There he bathed according to the principles and observed the ritualistic ceremonies. This site is also celebrated as a shrine of Lord Vishnu. Therefore, Lord Balaram distributed 10,000 cows to the local Brahmana priests. From Cape Cormoran, Lord Balaram turned towards Kerala. The country of Kerala is still existing in southern India under the name of South Kerala. Visiting this place, he came to Gokarna Tirtha, where Lord Shiva is constantly worshipped. Balaram then visited the temple of Arya Devi, which is completely surrounded by water. From that island, he went on to the place known as Shuparaka. After this, he bathed in the rivers known as Tapi, Payoshni, 
in Nirvindya. And then he came to the forest known as Dandakaranya. This is the same Dandakaranya forest where Lord Ramachandra lived while in exile. Lord Balaram next came to the bank of the river Narmada, the biggest river in central India. On the bank of this sacred Narmada is a pilgrimage spot known as Mahishmati Puri. After bathing there, according to the regulative principles, Lord Balaram returned to Prabhastirtha, where he had begun his journey. When Lord Balaram returned to Prabhastirtha, he heard from the Pramanas that most of the Kshatriyas in the Battle of Kurukshetra had been killed. Balaram felt relieved to hear that the burden of the world had been reduced. Lord Krishna and Balaram appeared on this earth to lessen the burden of military strength created by the ambitious Kshatriya kings. This is the way of materialistic life. Not being satisfied by the absolute necessities of life, people ambitiously create extra demands and their illegal desires are checked by the laws of nature or the appearing as famine, war, pestilence and similar catastrophes. Lord Balaram heard that although most of the Kshatriyas had been killed, the Kurus were still engaged in fighting. Therefore, he returned to battlefield just on the day Bhimasena and Duryodhan were engaged in a personal duel. As the well-wisher of both of them, Lord Balaram wanted to stop them, but he would not stop. But they would not stop. When Lord Balaram appeared on the scene, King Yudhishthir and his younger brothers Nakula and Sahadeva as well as Lord Krishna and Arjuna, immediately offered him their respectful obeisances, but they did not speak at all. The reason they were silent was that Lord Balaram was somewhat affectionate toward Duryodhan, who had learned from Balaramaji the art of fighting with a club. When the fighting was going on, King Yudhishthira and others thought that Balaram might have come there to say something in favor of Duryodhan, and they therefore remained silent. Both Duryodhan and Pimasena were very enthusiastic in fighting with clubs, and in the midst of a large audience, each very skillfully tried to with the other. While attempting to do so, they appeared to be dancing, but nonetheless, it was clear that both of them were very angry. Lord Balaram, wanting to stop the fighting, said, My dear King Duryodhan and Bhimasena, I know that both of you are great fighters and are well known in the world as great heroes. But still I think that Bhimasena is superior to Duryodhana in bodily strength. On the other hand, Duryodhana is superior in the art of fighting with a club. Taking this into consideration, my opinion is that neither of you is inferior to the other in fighting. Under the circumstances, there is very little chance that one of you will be defeated by the other. Therefore, I request you not to waste your time in fighting in this way. I wish you to stop this unnecessary fight. The good instruction given by Lord Balaram to Bhimasena and Duryodhan was intended for the equal benefit of both of them. But they were so enwrapped in anger against each other that they could remember only that they could remember only their long standing personal enmity. Each thought only of killing the other, and they did not give much importance to the instruction of Lord Balaram. Both of them then became like madmen in remembering the strong accusations and ill behavior they had exchanged with each other. Lord Balaram, being able to understand the destiny awaiting them, was not eager to go further in the matter. Therefore, instead of staying, he decided to return to the city of Dwarka. When he returned to Dwarka, 
He was received with great jubilation by relatives and friends, headed by King Ugrasena and other elderly persons, who all came forward to welcome him. After this, he again went to the holy places of pilgrimage at Naimasharanya, and the sages, saintly persons, and pramanas all stood to receive him. They understood that Lord Balaram, although a Kshatriya, was now retired from the fighting business. The brahmanas and sages, who were always for peace and tranquility, were very much pleased at this. All of them embraced Balaram with great affection and induced him to perform various kinds of sacrifices in that sacred spot of Naimasharanya. Actually, he's there, Naimasharanya on the way back, on the way to Dwarka? After this, okay, he went to Dwarka and then he went back out again. Okay. Actually, Lord Balaram had no business performing the sacrifices recommended for ordinary human beings. He is the Supreme Personality of Godhead, and therefore, he himself is the enjoyer of all such sacrifices. As such, his exemplary action in performing sacrifices was only to give a lesson to the common man to show how one should abide by the injunctions of the Vedas. The Supreme Personality of Godhead, Balaram, instructed the sages and saintly persons at Naimasharanya on the subject entity's relationship with this cosmic manifestation, on how one should regard this whole universe, and on how one should relate with the cosmos in order to achieve the highest goal of perfection. This supreme goal is the understanding that the whole cosmic manifestation rests on the Supreme Personality of Godhead, and that the Supreme Personality of Godhead is also all-pervading, even within the minutest atom, by the function of his Paramatma feature. Lord Balaram then took the Avabrita path, which is taken after finishing sacrificial performances. After taking his bath, he dressed himself in new silken garments and decorated himself with beautiful jewelry. Amidst his relatives and friends, he appeared to be a shining full moon amidst the luminaries in the sky. Lord Balaram is, this, is the personality of God at Ananta himself. Therefore, he is beyond the scope of understanding by mind, intelligence, or body. He descended exactly like a human being and behaved in that way for his own purposes. We can only explain his activities as the Lord's pastimes. No one can even estimate the extent of the unlimited demons, excuse me, unlimited demonstrations of his pastimes because he is all-powerful. Lord Balaram is the original Vishnu. Therefore, anyone remembering these pastimes of Lord Balaram in the morning and evening will certainly become a great devotee of the Supreme Personality of Godhead, and thus his life will be successful. In thus ends the Bhaktivedanta purport of the 79th, 79th chapter of Krishna, the liberation of Balval and Lord Balaram's touring the sacred places. We're now on chapter 80. The meeting of Lord Krishna with Sudama Brahma. King Prikshit was hearing the narrations of the pastimes of Lord Krishna and Lord Balaram from Shukadeva Goswami. These pastimes are all transcendentally pleasurable to hear. And Maharaj Prikshit addressed Shukadeva Goswami as follows My dear Lord, the Supreme Personality of Godhead Krishna is the bestower of both liberation and love of God simultaneously. Anyone who becomes a devotee of the Lord automatically attains liberation without having to make a separate attempt. Because the Lord is unlimited, 
his pastimes and activities for creating, maintaining, and destroying the whole cosmic manifestation are also unlimited. I therefore wish to hear about other pastimes of his, which you may not have described as yet. My dear Master, the conditioned souls within this material world are frustrated by searching out the pleasure of happiness derived from sense gratification. Such desires for material enjoyment are always piercing the hearts of conditioned souls. But I am actually experiencing how the transcendental topics of Lord Krishna's pastimes can relieve one from being affected by such material activities of sense gratification. I think that no intelligent person can reject this method of hearing the transcendental pastimes of the Lord again and again. Simply by hearing, one can remain always steeped in transcendental pleasure. Thus, one will not be attracted by material sense gratification. Okay. Mm. Thus, one will not be attracted by material sense gratification. In this statement, Maharaj Prikshit has used two important words, Vishana and Visheshagya. Vishana means morose. Materialistic people invent many ways and means to become fully satisfied, but actually they remain morose. The point may be raised that sometimes transcendentalists also remain morose. The point may be raised that sometimes transcendentalists also remain morose. <laughs> Prikshit Maharaj, however, has used the word Visheshagya. There are two kinds of transcendentalists, namely the impersonalists and the personalists. Visheshagya refers to the personalists who are interested in transcendental variegatedness. The devotees become jubilant by hearing the descriptions of the personal activities of the Supreme Lord, whereas the impersonalists, who are actually more attracted by the impersonal feature of the Lord, are only superficially attracted by the Lord's personal activities. As such, in spite of coming in contact with the pastimes of the impersonalists, do not fully realize the benefit to be derived, and thus they become just as morose as the materialists do in pursuing their fruitive activities. King Priksha continued, the ability to talk can be perfected only by describing the transcendental qualities of a Lord. The ability to work with one's hands can be successful only when one engages himself in the service of the Lord with those hands. Similarly, one's mind can be peaceful only when one simply thinks of Krishna in full Krishna consciousness. This does not mean that one has to have very great thinking power. One has to understand simply that Krishna, the absolute truth, is all-pervasive by his localized aspect of Paramatma. If one can simply think that Krishna as Paramatma is everywhere, even within the atom, then one can perfect the thinking, feeling, and willing functions of his mind. The, the perfect devotee does not see the material world 
as it appears material eyes. For he sees everywhere the presence of his worshipable Lord in his Paramatma feature. Maharaj Parikshit continued by saying that the function of the ear can be perfected simply by engagement in hearing the transcendental activities of the Lord. And the function of the head can be fully utilized. The head is engaged in bowing down before the Lord and his representative. That the Lord is represented in everyone's heart is a fact, and therefore the highly advanced devotee offers his respects to every living entity, considering that the body is the temple of the Lord. But it is not possible for all men to come to that stage of life immediately, because that stage is for the first-class devotee. The second-class devotee can consider the Vaishnavas or the devotees of the Lord to be representatives of Krishna. And the, and the devotee who is just beginning, the neophyte or third-class devotee, can bow his head before the deity in the temp temple <clears throat> and before the spiritual master, who is the direct manifestation of the Supreme Personality of Godhead. Just excuse me for a second. Sorry. <clears throat> Therefore, in the neophyte stage, in the intermediate stage, or in the fully advanced, perfected stage, one can make the function of the head perfect by bowing down before the Lord or his representative. Similarly, one can perfect the function of the eyes by seeing the Lord and his representative. In this way, everyone can elevate the functions of the different parts of his body to the highest perfectional stage simply by engaging them in the service of a Lord or his representative. If one is able to do nothing more, he can simply bow down before the Lord and his representative and drink the Tarninamrita, the water which has washed the lotus feet of the Lord or his devotee. On hearing these statements of Maharaj Prikshits, Shukadeva Goswami was overwhelmed with devotional ecstasy because of King Prikshit's advanced understanding of the Vaishnava philosophy. Shukadeva Goswami was already engaged in describing the activities of the Lord, and when asked by Maharaj Prikshit to describe them further, he continued to narrate Srimad Bhagavatam with great pleasure. There was a very nice Brahmana friend of Lord Krishna, as a perfect brahmana, he was very elevated knowledge, and because of his advanced knowledge, he was not at all attached to material enjoyment. Therefore, he was very peaceful and had achieved supreme control over his senses. This means that the brahmana was a perfect devotee, because unless one is a perfect devotee, he cannot achieve the highest standard of knowledge. It is stated in the Bhagavad Gita that a person who has come to the perfection of knowledge surrenders unto the Supreme Personality of Godhead. In other words, any person who has surrendered his life for the service of the Supreme Personality of Godhead has come to the point of perfect knowledge. I'm going to repeat that. In other words, 
any person who has surrendered his life for the service of the Supreme Personality of Godhead has come to the point of perfect knowledge. The result of perfect knowledge is that one becomes detached from the materialistic way of life. This detachment means complete detachment. This detachment means complete control of the senses, which are always attracted by material enjoyment. <clears throat> the senses of the devotee become purified, and in that stage, the senses are engaged in the service of the Lord. That is the complete field of devotional service. Although the Brahmana friend of Lord Krishna was a householder, he was not busy accumulating wealth for very comfortable living. Therefore, he was satisfied by the income which automatically came to him according to his destiny. This is the sign of perfect knowledge. A, perfect, a man in perfect knowledge knows that one cannot be happier than he is destined to be. In this material world, everyone is destined to suffer a certain of distress and joy and enjoy a certain amount of happiness. The amount of happiness and distress is already predestined for every living entity. Increase or decrease the happiness of the materialistic way of life. The Brahmana, therefore, did not exert himself for more material happiness. Instead, he used his time for advancement of Krishna consciousness. Externally, he appeared very poor because he had no rich clothes and could not provide rich clothes for his wife. Because their material condition was not very opulent, they were not, they were not even eating sufficiently, and thus both he and his wife appeared very thin. The wife was not anxious for her personal comfort, but she felt concerned for her husband, who was such a pious brahmana. She trembled due to, due to her weak health, and although she did not like to dictate to her husband, she spoke as follows. My dear Lord, I know that Lord Krishna, the husband of the goddess of fortune, is your personal friend. You are also a devotee of Lord Krishna, and he is always ready to help his devotees. Even if you think that you are not rendering any devotional service to the Lord, still, you were surrendered to him, and the Lord is the protector of the surrendered soul. Moreover, I know that Lord Krishna is the ideal personality of Vedic culture. He is always in favor of Brahminical culture and is very kind to the qualified Brahmanas. You are the most fortunate person because you have as your friend the Supreme Personality of Godhead. Lord Krishna is the only shelter for personalities like you because you are fully surrendered unto him. Was that the, the, that the time thing that, came, that went up? And, oh, I, know, I didn't know that. I thought it was a call or something. Okay. Um, you are saintly, learned, and fully in control of your senses. Under the circumstances, Lord Krishna is your only shelter. Please, therefore, go to him. I am sure that he will immediately understand your impoverished position. You are a householder, therefore, without money you are in distress. 
But as soon as he understands your position, he will certainly give you sufficient riches so that you can live very comfortably. Lord Krishna is now the king of the Boja, Vishnu, Taka dynasties, and I have heard that he never leaves his capital city, Dwarka. He is living there without outside engagements. He is so kind and liberal that he immediately gives everything, even his personal self, to any person who surrenders unto him. Since he is prepared to give himself personally to his devotee, there is nothing wonderful in giving some material riches. Of course, he does not give much material wealth to his devotee if the devotee is not very much fixed. But I think that in your case, he knows perfectly well how much you are fixed in devotional service. Therefore, he will not hesitate to award you some material benefit for the bare necessities of life. In this way, the wife of the Pramana again and again requested, in great humility and submission, that he go to Lord Krishna. The Brahmana thought that there was no need to ask any material benefit from Lord Sri Krishna, but he was induced by the repeated request of his wife. Moreover, he thought, if I go there, I shall be able to see the Lord personally. That will be a great opportunity, even if I don't ask any material benefit from him. When he had decided to go to Krishna, he asked his wife if she had anything in the home that he could offer to Krishna, because he must take some presentation to his friend. The wife immediately collected four palmfuls of chipped rice from her neighborhood friends and tied it in a small cloth, like a handkerchief, and gave it to her husband to present to Krishna. Without waiting, the Brahmana took the presentation and proceeded toward Dwarka to see his Lord. He was absorbed in the thought of how he would be able to see Lord Krishna. He had no thought within his heart other than Krishna. It was, of course, very difficult to reach the palaces of the kings of the Yadu dynasty, but Brahmanas were allowed to visit. When the Brahmana friend of Lord Krishna went there, he, along with other Brahmanas, had to pass through three military encampments. In each camp, there were very big gates, and he also had to pass through them. After the gates and the camps, there were 16,000 big palaces, the residential quarters of the 16,000 queens of Lord Krishna. The Brahmana entered one palace which was very gorgeously decorated. When he entered this beautiful palace, he felt that he was swimming in the ocean of transcendental pleasure. He felt himself constantly diving and surfacing in that transcendental ocean. <clears throat> At that time, Lord Krishna was sitting on the bedstead of Queen Mukmini. Even from a considerable distance, he could see the Brahmana coming to his home, and he could recognize him as his friend. Lord Krishna immediately left his seat and came forward to receive his Brahmana friend and, upon reaching him, embraced the Brahmana with his two arms. Lord Krishna is the reservoir of all transcendental pleasure, yet he himself felt great pleasure upon embracing the poor Brahmana because he was meeting his very dear friend. Lord Krishna had him seated on his own bedstead and personally brought all kinds of fruits and drinks to offer him as is proper in receiving a worshipable guest. Lord Sri Krishna is the supreme pure, but because he was playing the role of an ordinary human being, he immediately washed the Brahmana's feet and, for his own purification, sprinkled the water onto his head. After he smeared the body of the Brahmana with different kinds of scented pulp, such as sandalwood, aguru, and saffron. He immediately burned several kinds of scented incense, and as usual, and as is usual, offered him arti with burning lamps. After thus offering him an adequate welcome 
and after the Brahmana had taken food and drink, Lord Krishna said, My dear friend, it is a great fortune that you have come here. The Brahmana, being very poor, was not dressed nicely. His clothing was torn and dirty, and his body was very lean and thin. He appeared not very clean, and because of his weak body, his bones were distinctly visible. The goddess of fortune, Rukmini Devi, personally began to fan him with the Chamara fan. But the other women in the palace were astonished at Lord Krishna's behavior in receiving the Brahmana in that way. They were surprised to see how eager Lord Krishna was to welcome this particular Brahmana. They wondered how Lord Krishna would personally <coughs> could personally receive a Brahmana who was poor, not very neat or clean, and poorly dressed. But at the same time, they could realize that the Brahmana was not an ordinary living being. They knew that he must have performed great pious activities. Otherwise, why was Lord Krishna, the husband of the goddess of fortune, taking care of him so much? They were, all still, they were still more surprised to see that the Brahmana was seated on the bedstead of Lord Krishna. They were especially surprised to see that Lord Krishna had embraced him exactly as he embraced his elder brother, Balaramaji, because Lord Krishna used to embrace only Rukmini or, or Balaram and no one else. After the Brahmana had been received nicely and seated on Lord Krishna's own cushioned bed, he and Krishna took each one other's hands and began to talk about their early life when they had both lived under the protection of the Gurukul, a boarding school. Lord Krishna said, My dear Brahmana friend, you are a most intelligent personality, and you know very well the principles of religious life. I believe that after you finished your education at the house of our teacher, and after you sufficiently remunerated him, you must have gone back to your home and accepted a suitable wife. I know very well that from the beginning you were not at all attached to the materialistic way of life, nor did you desire to be very opulent materially, and therefore you were in need and therefore you were in need of money. In this material world, persons <clears throat> who are not attached to material opulence are very rare such persons haven't the least desire to accumulate wealth and prosperity for sense gratification, but sometimes they are found to collect money just to exhibit the exemplary life of a householder. They show how by proper distribution of wealth one can become an ideal householder and at the same time a great devotee. Such ideal householders are to be considered followers of my footsteps. I hope, my dear prominent friend, that you remember all those days of our school life when you and I were living together at the boarding school. Actually, whatever knowledge you and I received in life was accumulated in our student life. If a man is sufficiently educated in student life under the guidance of a proper teacher, his life becomes successful in the future. He can very easily cross over the ocean of nations, and he is not subject to the influence of the illusory energy. My dear friend, everyone should consider his father to be his first teacher because by the mercy of one's father, one gets this body. The father is therefore the natural spiritual master. Master is he who initiates us into transcendental knowledge, and he is to be worshipped as much as I am. The spiritual master may be more than one. The spiritual master who instructs the disciple about spiritual matters is called the Shiksha Guru, and the spiritual master who initiates the disciple is called the Diksha Guru. Both of them are my representatives. They may be 
There may be many spiritual masters who instruct, but the initiator spiritual master is one. A human being who takes advantage of these spiritual masters and receiving proper knowledge from them crosses the ocean of spiritual existence is to be understood as having properly realized his human form of life. He has practical knowledge that the ultimate interest of life, which is to be gained only in this human form, is to achieve spiritual perfection and thus be transferred home back to Godhead. My dear friend, I am Paramatma, the super-soul present in everyone's heart. Direct order that human society follow the principles of Varna and Ashrama. As I stated in the Bhagavad Gita, human society should be divided into four Varnas according to the quality and action. Similarly, everyone should divide his life into four parts. One should utilize the first life of life in becoming a bona fide student, receiving adequate knowledge and keeping oneself in the vow of brahmacharya, so that one may completely devote his life to the service of the spiritual master without indulging in sense gratification. A brahmachari is meant to lead a life of austerities and penance. The householder is meant to lead a life of austerities and penance. The householder is meant to live a life, a regulated life of sense gratification. But no one should remain a householder for the third stage of life. In that stage, one has to return to the austerities and penances formerly practiced in brahmachari life and thus relieve himself of the attachment to household life. After being relieved of his attachments to the materialistic way of life, one may accept the order of sannyas. Yeah, just the statement that uh, you read just now, uh, was that spoken by Krishna or uh, was that sp uh, spoken by Prabhupada? You know, that part. Yeah, that part which says one should divide his life into four parts. Krishna's that was in quotes. Okay. Yeah. <clears throat> As the super-soul of the living entities, I sit in everyone's heart and observe everyone's activity in every stage and order. Regardless of which stage one is in, when I see that one is engaged seriously and sincerely in discharging the duties ordered by the spiritual master, and is thus dedicating his life to the service of the Supreme Master, that person becomes most dear to me. As far as the life of brahmacharya is concerned, if one can continue the life of a brahmachari under the direction of a spiritual master, that is extremely good. But if a brahmachari life, if in brahmachari love, life one feels sex impulses, he should take leave of his spiritual master, satisfying him according to the Guru's desire. According to the Vedic system, a gift is offered to the spiritual master, which is called Guru Dakshina. <clears throat> then, this, then the disciple should take to householder life and accept a wife according to religious rites. These instructions given by Lord Krishna while talking with his friend the learned brahmana, <clears throat> are very good for the guidance of human society. A system of human civilization that does not promote varna and ashrama is nothing but a polished animal society. Indulgence in sex life by a man or woman living single is never acceptable in human society. A man should strictly follow the principles of brahmachari life 
or with the permission of the spiritual master, should get married. <clears throat> Single life with illicit sex is animal life, for the animals have no such institution as marriage. Modern society does not aim at fulfilling the mission of human life, which is to go back home, back to Godhead. To fulfill this mission, the system of Varna and Ashrama must be followed. When the system is followed rigidly and consciously, it fulfills this mission. But when followed indirectly with the guidance of superior authority, it simply creates a disturbing condition in human society and there is no peace and prosperity. Krishna continued to talk with his Brahmana friend. My dear friend, I think you remember our activities during the days when we were living in the, with students. <clears throat> you may remember that once we went to collect fuel from the forest on the order of the guru's wife. <clears throat> While collecting the dried wood, we entered the dense forest and by chance became lost. There was an unexpected dust storm and then clouds and lightning in the sky and the explosive sound of thunder. Then sunset came and we were lost in the dark jungle. After this, there was severe rainfall. The whole ground was overflooded with water, <clears throat> and we could not trace out the way to return to our guru's ashram. You may remember that heavy rainfall. It was not actually rainfall, but a sort of devastation. On account of the dust storm and the heavy rain, we began to feel greatly pained, and in whichever direction we turned, we were bewildered. In that distressed condition, we took each other's hand and tried to find our way out. We passed the whole night in that way, and early in the morning, when our absence became known by our Gurudev, he sent his other disciples to search us out. He also came with them, and when they reached us in the jungle, they found us very much distressed. With great compassion, our Gurudev said, My dear boys, it is very wonderful that, if you, that you have suffered so much Everyone likes to take care of his body as the first consideration. But you are so good and faithful to your Guru that without caring for bodily comforts, you have taken so much trouble for me. I am glad to see that bona fide students like you will undergo any kind of trouble for the satisfaction of the spiritual master. This is the way for a bona fide disciple to become free from his debt to the spiritual master. It is the duty of the disciple to dedicate his life to the service of the spiritual master. My dear best of the twice-born, I am greatly pleased by your acts and I bless you. May all your desires and ambitions be fulfilled. Understanding of the Vedas, which you have learned from me, always continue to remain within your memory, so that at every moment you can remember the teachings of the Vedas and quote their instructions without difficulty. Thus, you will never be disappointed in this life or the next. Krishna continued, my dear friend, you may remember that many such incidents occurred while we were in the ashram of our spiritual master. <clears throat> Both of us can realize that without the blessings of the spiritual master, 
No one can be happy. By the mercy of the spiritual master and by his blessings, one can achieve peace and prosperity and be able to fulfill the mission of human life. On hearing this, the learned Brahmanas replied, My dear Krishna, you are the Supreme Lord and the Supreme Spiritual Master of everyone. And since I was fortunate enough to live with you in the house of our Guru, I think I have nothing more to do in the matter of prescribed Vedic duties. My dear Lord, <clears throat> the Vedic hymns, ritualistic ceremonies, religious activities, and all other necessities for the perfection of human life, including economic development, sense gratification, and liberation, are all derived from one source, your Supreme Personality. All the different processes of life are ultimately meant for understanding your Personality. In other words, they are the different parts of your transcendental form. And yet you played the role of a student and lived with us in the house of the Guru. This means that you adopted all these pastimes for your pleasure only. Otherwise, there was no need for your playing the role of a human being. Thus end the Bhaktivedanta purport of the 80th chapter of Krishna, the meeting of Lord Krishna, Dhamma, Brahmana. Just a few comments. This is going back a few chapters, first of all. I just noting this sentence from one of the chapters. And in the great assembly, King Yudhishthir's Rajasu Yoga, well, my friend Shushapal was a little absent-minded. You took an opportunity to kill him. When I heard that, it reminded me conflict that I'm involved in right now anywhere <laughs> in the world. People have such a different view of what actually is happening or actually happened. I mean, does Shishupali actually, or who is this speaking now? It's uh, Shalva. Yeah, Dantravakra. is saying, you know, my friend Shishupal was just a little absent-minded. Like, how could you be so cruel and so forth? And everyone on the other side is thinking, like, why didn't she kill him sooner? And it was just, I thought it was kind of a profound a glimpse into the uh, mindset of the opposition. And then uh, this uh, sentence, therefore, although Romaharshan Sutta was voted to the Vyasasan by all the Brahmanas, he should have followed the behavior of other learned sages and Brahmanas present and should have known that Lord Balaram is the Supreme Personality of Godhead. There's a per perennial discussion about the guru system in, in, in ISKCON and how, uh, how could you appoint gurus and so forth. Uh, and, <clears throat> I mean, very obviously they appointed their guru in this mm. situation. They put him on the Vyasa mm. sign, mm. on the Vyasasan. And the next sentence says, not next sentence, but another sentence in that section, Romaharshan Sudit had been given the chance to become a perfect Brahmana. Oh, wait, that's a different one. Yeah, he was seated on the Vyasasan by our election. And when one is seated on the Vyasasan, it isn't proper for him to stand up.
and receive the person. So again, the terminology Prabhupada uses, and that was obviously the situation there. So it's not a stereotype situation that the idea that, you know, guru-disciple relationship is completely natural, it can't be involved in any institutional concerns and so forth, because even in this context, we have a way, you know, vision into the way that the sages voted. I mean, that's what it says. And then the final one I had here was, Romaharshan had been given the chance to become a perfect Brahmana, but because of his ill behavior and his relationship with the Supreme Personality of Godhead, his low birth was immediately remembered. <laughs> and it's a, it doesn't, whatever qualification or disqualification one might have isn't noticed until you violate and then it comes out and people notice it or Krishna might make it prominently known to people in general. Any comments, responses? Yeah. Uh, oh, I've got the thing. <clears throat> um, yeah, when when you take uh, position, any kind of position, particularly spiritual leadership, then um, the spotlight comes on bright and. Uh, You know, if you take some really big position in the in the country, president or prime minister or whatever it is, then every single movement is everyone's looking at and they're thinking about and commenting on and so many things. But here, uh, he he had he was doing good, you know, but because he did something wrong, then something that he did a long time ago. You know, was remembered. That's that spotlight. You know, so we have to be very careful how we behave. Correct. And even even though Balaram, you know, did because they suggested to him that he do something, he said yes. As an example for others, I have to do the right thing. Speaking about the examples, um, how strict was Vedic society that Brahmins are asking the Supreme Personality of Godhead to atone, uh, and how he accepts it as such. It sounds daring, but uh, it's a constant surprise, Vedic culture. My comment is along the same lines. Um, just because Ramaharshan didn't pay obeisances to Lord Balaram, Lord Balaram killed him. But then afterwards, all the sages who were present there, they protested the action of Lord Balaram and asked him to atone. Um, and that also seems to be somewhat offensive to because they all knew that he's a supreme person, he's the supreme personality of Godhead, and and then they were uh, asking him, uh, they were, in fact, correcting him for some action that uh, Balaram did, 
and and at the time lord balaram in the mood of a spiritual master he could have taken some action against the sages also for suggesting uh, some atonement because but he didn't do that so i'm just wondering <laughs> well he he did yeah but he did, but he did also say okay so i'll you know do so i can bring him back to life and i can do this and i can do that and you know so. hari krishna so i just noted just chapter we just finished a couple paragraphs before the end there was a couple sentences at the end that stood out i said the standing of sandi pandimuni is speaking he says may the understanding of the vedas which you have learned from me always continue to remain within your memory so that even so that every moment you can remember the teachings of the vedas and quote their instructions without difficulty thus you will never be disappointed in this life or the next so just the point of you know taking the effort to memorize verses and you know and, and read through these books thoroughly and repeatedly so the vedas can can be and then at times of difficulty throughout our life you know we have the shastra to be able to cut through whatever illusion we might be facing or i might be facing Um I'm just wondering about the parts where it's the mentioning about uh uh basically uh about dedicating the life to the spiritual master taking bodily uh forgetting bodily comforts and making this the life and goal if we were with new people and we were reading this how would you uh, explain it? It like so completely new. Give us a specific instance. <coughs> well, I mean, just new people. New people to Krishna consciousness, who comes. Uh, like uh, if they come to for reading, and uh, like when in uh, Houston, for example, and when they come for the reading, maybe some first time or they've been coming. For a few well, times. He, in So Street, he actually uh, preaches and he does programs and new people. He's dealing with them a lot, isn't it? Yes. Yeah, so I was just wondering for someone like someone relatively new and they heard that, it could be quite scary and this notion of having spiritual master and doing how. <laughs> how how do you present it to them yeah. in a way that they can accept it? Is yes, that what you're yeah. saying? Well, you could put it in the context of the culture of the time, that this was the way in which people built character in their youth, and contrast it with modern culture, in which people have unrestricted access to sense gratification at a young age, and talk about the difference in result, and also talk about the fact that in the modern age, even though the we follow the basic principle of giving young people an opportunity to take to this kind of life of dedication it's somewhat modified so that people 
who come from a different culture can adapt to it kind of easily. I mean, Prabhupada gradually introduced things so people could come to the point of being in ashram life, but it wasn't a, a, such an abrupt move that they became discouraged. But I think if you just stop at intervals and explain things to them, that there are people who come from uh, Western culture who have adapted to this and explain what what's the day in the life of a devotee and how good it feels that actually you know, it's a joyful thing to be able to get up early and dance and be with friends and eat the best healthy food there is and hear philosophy and all these kinds of things. I find that a lot of people are actually eager for some kind of a, an adjustment to their life because they feel overburdened by sense gratification and oftentimes they realize they're not getting much out of it. A life of dedication sounds good to people. What I usually say in the beginning, before we get to that stage, is I, I say to them, well, you came into the world, and how did you learn what you learn? You had to ask your mother, mommy, what's this? Daddy, what's this? From the very beginning. So then, what that means is that, you know, everything that we've learned, all of us, without exception, learn from someone else so therefore it's the nature it's 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 inherent in life in human life you know and then I big from there I go to the point of so does that mean that spiritual life is something completely different like okay now I'm spiritual life so I don't have to learn anything from anybody but it's not like that you go to higher education, you have to be, you know, submissive to your teachers, you have to give, do the test, you have to do so many things. So usually when I put it in that kind of context, and then from there, then I go to Prabhu's point about, and because people, because that's breaking down now, right? And, and what's the result? Is it a happier place? Is the world a happier place now? Then when there was more structure and there was more, you know, respect for, authority, you know. And usually, frankly, I found that usually the people who are, you know, Krishna has has brought into the temple because it takes this Krishna to bring them in, they're they're ready enough to hear something like that and accept it. Just had to put it in context as as we were saying and explain it in context. And now, of course everybody will anybody who's reasonable. And then if they won't, don't waste time with unreasonable people. You know, speak like that. When you see somebody going, oh yeah, all right, then invest your energy there, and then you will stay high forever. <laughs> Anyone else? I like this statement uh, which said, therefore, although Roma Hashina Sutta was voted to the Vyasasana by all the Brahmanas, he should have followed the behavior of other learned sages and brahmanas present and should have known that Lord Balram is the Supreme Personality of Godhead. Uh, because if he was voted by those brahmanas, then when they were offering respects, so he should have uh, been mindful that I'm here because of them. So as a gesture, 
it's good to follow in the footsteps of the teachers, even if there's service opportunity to instruct. Yeah. I was thinking in this pastime, uh, Balaram really as the original spiritual master is teaching that how to show respect to the Supreme Personality of Godhead and also doing the duty of weeding out the uh, yeah. imposters because <clears throat> the guru is supposed to defeat bad arguments, faulty arguments and so forth that mislead people on the path of devotional service and Balaram does that here gets rid of Ramaharshan because he's going to be a detriment to all these sages and everybody else in the world that's one of the duties of a teacher spiritual master who is Ramaharshan is he uh, he's one of the represent, uh, representatives is one of the like books uh, the Vedas or something like that yeah I heard Gopi Prabhupada talk about this. Um, I'm thinking, just let me think for a second. He was, he was, a, he was famous and he had uh, a big Yajnastala. He was famous being uh, learned in the Vedas and he also had uh, students, lots of students. And also Shonikarishi, this is an interesting point because <clears throat> Sutta Goswami got put in, Urgasha, Sutta Goswami put, got put in the position, his son. And it's Sutta Goswami who heard from Shukadeva Goswami. And that's another thing that happened. So that the person who heard directly from Shukadeva Goswami could speak to the sages because he, he knew the Bhagavatam because after you know yeah then that's who Balaram put in as in place of Ramaharshan Sutta and and Shonaka who was the representative of the sages who was speaking and inquiring from Sutta Goswami he was very big sage and uh it's interesting because the, the the sutta generally doesn't take that position in an assembly of brahmanas and elevated persons. But he knew the Puranas and he knew the Bhagavatam because he had heard from uh, Shukadeva Goswami. And that, cert, that sacrifice, they heard all the Puranas and all the Vedas before they heard the Bhagavatam. It was the last thing they heard. And Sutta Goswami was there to speak it because he was, uh, he had heard directly from from uh, from Shukadev Goswami. The twelfth canto, entitled Chapter Seven, entitled the Puranic Literatures. Each one of them studied one of the anthologies of the Puranas from my father, Romaharshan. Sujus so Goswami speaking, who was a disciple of Srila Vyasadeva. I six authorities and thoroughly learned all the presentations of Puranic wisdom. Romaharshan, a disciple of Veda Vyasa, divided the Puranas into four basic compilations. 
the sage Kashyapa and I, along with Sarvani and Akritavarna, a disciple of Rama, learned these four divisions. Obviously a big personality. Yeah, he was very big. Because he, you know, it's mentioned that the Vedas were divided. And he was a disciple of Vyasadeva. And then we find him mentioned again in the in the Chaitanya Charita, mm. in the story of how the author meets Lord Nityananda, because he uh, tells how he was at his brother's house, mm. and says Lord Nityananda Prabhu had a servant named Sri Minikatana Ramdas, who was a reservoir of love. At my house there was Sankatan day and night, and therefore he visited there, having been invited. Absorbed in emotional love, he sat in my courtyard, and all the Vaishnavas bowed down at his feet. In a joyful mood of love of God, sometimes climbed upon the shoulders of someone offering obeisances, and sometimes he struck others with his flute or mildly slapped them. When someone saw the eyes of Minikatana Ramdas, Tears would automatically flow from his own eyes, <clears throat> for a constant shower of tears flowed from the eyes of Minikatana Ramdas. Sometimes there were eruptions of ecstasy like Kadamba flowers on some parts of his body, and sometimes one lip would be stunned while another would be trembling. Whenever he shouted aloud the name Nityananda, the people around him were filled with great wonder and astonishment. One respectable brahmana named Gunardava Mishra was serving the deity. When Minikatana was seated in the yard, Brahmana did not offer him respect. Seeing this, Sri Ramdas became angry and spoke. Here I find the second Romaharshan Sutta, mm -hmm. who did not stand show honor when he saw Lord Balaram. Mm -hmm. After saying this, he danced and sang to his heart's content, but the Brahmana did not become angry, for he was then serving Lord Krishna. Purport, Minikatana Ramdas was a great devotee of Lord Nityananda. When he entered the house of Krishnas Kaviraj, Gunarnavavishra, the priest who was worshipping the deity, installed the did not receive him very well. A similar incident occurred when Romaharshan Sutta was speaking to the great assembly of sages at Naimasarnya. Lord Baladev entered that great assembly, but since Romaharshan Sutta was on the Vyasasana, he did not get down to offer respects to Lord Baladev. The behavior of Gunarnava Mishra indicated that he had no Lord Ananda, and this idea was not at all palatable to Minikatana Ramdas. For this reason, the mentality of Minikatana Ramdas is never deprecated by, the, by devotees. At the end of the festival, Minikatana Ramdas went away offering his blessings to everyone. At that time, he had some controversy with my brother. My brother had firm faith in Lord Chaitanya, but only a, but only a dim glimmer of faith in Lord Nityananda. No, Ramdas felt unhappy in his mind. I rebuked my brother. I then rebuked my brother. <clears throat> These two brothers, I told him, are like one body. They are identical manifestations. If you do not believe in Lord Nityananda, you will fall down. If you have faith in one but disrespect the other, your logic is like mm -hmm. the logic of accepting half a hen. It would be better to be an atheist by slighting both brothers than a hypocrite by believing in one and slighting the other. Thus, Sri 
Ramdas broke his flute in anger and went away, and at that time my brother fell down. I have thus described the power of the servants of Lord Nanda. Now I shall describe another characteristic of his mercy. That night, Lord Nityananda appeared to me in a dream because of my good quality of chastising my brother. In the village of Jamatapur, which is near Naihati, Lord Nityananda appeared to me in a dream. I fell at his feet, offering my obeisances, placed his own lotus feet upon my head. Arise, get up, he told me again and again. Upon rising, I was greatly astonished to see his beauty. He had a glossy, blackish complexion, and his tall, strong, heroic stature made him seem like Cupid himself. He had beautifully formed hands, arms, and legs, and eyes like lotus flowers. He wore a silk cloth with a turban on his head. He wore golden earrings on his ears and golden armlets and bangles. He wore tinkling anklets on his and a garland of flowers around his neck. His body was anointed with sandalwood pulp, and he was nicely decorated with tilak. His movements surpassed those of a maddened elephant. His face was more beautiful than millions upon millions of moons, and his teeth were like pomegranate seeds because of his chewing beetle. His body moved to and fro, right and left, for he was absorbed in ecstasy. He chanted, Krishna, Krishna, in a deep voice. His red stick moving in he seemed like a maddened lion. All around, the four sides of his feet were bumblebees. His devotees, dressed like coward boys, surrounded his feet like so many bees and also chanted, Krishna, Krishna, absorbed in ecstatic love. Some of them played horns and flutes, and others danced and sang. Some of them offered beetle nuts, and others waved chamara fans about him. Thus I saw such opulence in Nityananda Swarup. This wonderful form, wonderful form, qualities and pastimes are all transcendental. I was overwhelmed with transcendental ecstasy, not knowing anything else. Then Lord Nityananda smiled and spoke to me as follows. O oh, my dear Krishnadas, do not be afraid. Go to Vrindavan, for there you will attain all things. After saying this, he directed me toward Vrindavan by waving his hand. Then he disappeared with his assistance. I fainted and fell to the ground. My dream broke, and when I regained consciousness, I saw that morning had come. I thought about what I had seen and heard, and concluded that the Lord had ordered me to proceed to Vrindavan at once. That very second, I started for Vrindavan, and by His mercy, I reached there in great happiness. All glory, all glory to Lord Nitinanda Balaram, by whose mercy I have attained shelter in the transcendental abode of Vrindavan. All glory, all glory to the merciful Lord Nitinanda, by whose mercy I have attained shelter at the lotus feet of Sri Rupa and Sri Sanatan. By his mercy I have attained the shelter of the great personality Sri Raghunandas Goswami, and by his mercy I have found the refuge of Sri Swarup Damodar. Purport anyone desiring to become expert in the service of Sri Sri Radha and Krishna should always aspire to be under the guidance of Srup Damodar Goswami, Rupa Goswami, Sarupa Goswami, and Raghunath Das Goswami. To come under the protection of the Goswamis, one must get the mercy and grace of Nityananda Prabhu. The author has tried to explain this fact in these two verses. So just thought, you know, the stories are parallel in the way that one has to 
to approach Lord Nityananda in order to get the Lord's mercy. And if one disregards Lord, Lord Nityananda, like the brother of Kaviraj, then he falls down. Yeah. <clears throat> In the pastime of uh, Sudama, the Brahmana, I like very much the fact that uh, his wife was much more concerned about his welfare than about her own welfare, which is very highly elevated position, because usually you're always concerned about your own welfare. But she accepted every in situation of poverty and just cared about her husband. That's I liked very much. <clears throat> Chapter eighty one. Can you believe it? Eighty one out of ninety. Of course, he got one real big one. 78 is a really big one. The Brahmana Sudama. What? Okay. I'm sorry. Okay. What was it? You were saying the Brahmana Sudama, blessed by Lord Krishna. <clears throat> Lord the Supreme Personality of Godhead, the Super Soul of all living entities, knows everyone's heart very well. He is especially inclined to the Brahmana devotees. Lord Krishna is also called Brahmanya Deva, which means that he is worshipped by the Brahmanas. Therefore it is understood that a devotee who is fully surrendered unto the Supreme Personality of Godhead has already acquired the position of a Brahmana. Without becoming a Brahmana, one cannot approach the Supreme Brahman, Lord Krishna. Krishna is especially concerned with vanquishing the distress of his devotees, and he is the only shelter of pure devotees. Lord Krishna engaged for a long time in talking with Sudama Vipra about their past association. Then, just to enjoy the company of an old friend, Lord Krishna began to smile and asked, my dear friend, what have you brought for me? Has your wife given you some nice eatable for me? While addressing his friend, Krishna looked upon him and smiled with great love. He continued, My dear friend, you must have brought some presentation for me from your home. Lord Krishna knew that Sudama was hesitating to present him with the paltry chip rice, which was actually unfit for his eating. Understanding the mind of Sudama Vipra, the Lord said, My dear friend, I am certainly not in need of anything, <clears throat> but if a devotee, but if my devotee gives me something of love, even though it may be very insignificant, I accept it with great pleasure. And if a person is not a devotee, even though he may be offer me very on the other hand, if a person is not a devotee, even though he may for me very valuable things, I do not like to accept them. I actually accept many things offered to me in devotion and love. 
Otherwise, however valuable a thing may be, I will not accept it. If my pure devotee offers me even the most insignificant things, a little flower, a piece of leaf, a, a little water, but saturates the offering in loving in devotional love, then not only do I gladly accept such an offering, but I eat it with great pleasure. Lord Krishna assured Sudhapra that he would be very glad to accept the chipped rice he had brought from home, yet out of great shyness, Sudama Vipra hesitated to present it to the Lord. He was thinking, how can I offer such an insignificant thing to Krishna? And he simply bowed his head. Lord Krishna, the super soul, knows everything in everyone's heart. He knows everyone's determination and everything want. He knew, therefore, the reason for Sudama Vipra's coming to him. He knew that driven by extreme poverty, he had there at the request of his wife. Thinking of Sudama as his dear class friend, Sudama's love for him as a friend was never tainted by any desire for material benefit. The thought, <clears throat> Sudama has not come asking anything from me. Being obliged by the request of his wife, he has come to see me just to please me. Krishna thought, Sudama has not come to asking me anything. Sudama has not come asking anything from me, being obliged by the request of his wife. He has come to see me just to please her. Lord Krishna therefore decided that he would give more material opulence to Sudama Vipra than could be imagined even by the king of heaven. He then snatched the bundle of chipped rice, which was hanging on the shoulder of the poor Brahmana, packed in one corner of his wrapper, and said, <coughs> what is this? My dear friend, you have brought me nice, palatable, chipped rice. He encouraged Sudama Vipra, saying, I consider that this quantity of chipped rice will satisfy not only me, but the whole creation. It is understood from this statement that Krishna, being the original source of everything, is the root of, of the entire creation. As watering the root of a tree immediately distributes water to every part of the tree, so an offering made to Krishna or any action done for Krishna is to be considered the welfare work for everyone because the benefit of such an offering is distributed throughout the creation. Love for Krishna is distributed to all living entities. While Lord Krishna was speaking to Sadama Vipra, he ate one morsel of chipped rice from the, his bundle and when he attempted to eat a second morsel, Rukmini Goddess of Fortune herself checked the Lord by catching hold of his hand. After touching the hand of Krishna, Rukmini said, My Lord, this one morsel of chipped rice is sufficient to cause him who offered it to become very opulent in this life and to continue his opulence in the next life. My Lord, you are so kind to your devotee that even this one morsel of chipped rice pleases you very greatly, and your pleasure assures the devotee opulence in both this life and the next. This indicates that when food is offered to Lord Krishna with love and devotion, he is to accept it from his devotee. Rukmini Devi, the goddess of fortune, becomes so greatly obliged to the devotee that she has to go personally to the devotee's home.
home to turn it into the most opulent home in the world. If one feeds Narayan sumptuously, the goddess of fortune Lakshmi automatically becomes a guest in one's home, which means that one's home becomes opulent. The learned Brahmana Sudama passed that night at the house of Lord Krishna, and while there he felt as if he were living on a Vaikuntha planet. Actually, he was living in Vaikuntha, but wherever and Rukmini Devi, the goddess of fortune, live is not different from the spiritual planets, Vaikuntha Loka. The learned Bhamana Sudama did not appear to have received anything substantial from Lord Krishna while at his palace, yet he did not ask anything from the Lord. The next morning he started for his home, thinking always about his reception by Krishna, and thus he merged in transcendental bliss. All the way home he simply remembered the dealings of Lord Krishna, and he felt very happy to have seen the Lord. The Pramana thought, It is most pleasurable to see Lord Krishna, who is most devoted to the Pramanas. How great a lover he is of the Brahminical culture. He is the Supreme Brahman himself, yet he reciprocates with the Brahmanas. He also respects the Brahmanas so much that he embraced to his chest such a poor Brahmana as me, although he never embraces anyone to his chest except the goddess of fortune. How can there be any comparison between me, a poor Brahmana and the Supreme Lord Krishna, who is the only shelter of the Goddess of Fortune. And yet, considering me a Brahmana, with heartfelt pleasure he embraced me in his two transcendental arms. Lord Krishna was so kind to me that he allowed me to sit in the same bedstead where the Goddess of Fortune lies down. He considered me his real brother. How can I appreciate my obligation to him? When I was tired, Srimati Rukmini Devi, the Goddess of Fortune, began to fan me, holding the chamara whisk in her own hand. She never considered her exalted position as the first queen of Lord Krishna. I was rendered service by the Supreme Personality of Godhead because of his high regard for the Brahmanas, and by massaging my legs and feeding me with his own hand, he practically worshipped me. Aspiring for elevation to the heavenly planets, liberation, all kinds of material opulence or perfection in the powers of mystic yoga, Everyone throughout the universe worships the lotus feet of Lord Krishna. Yet the Lord was so kind to me that he did not give me even a farthing, knowing very well that I am a poverty-stricken man who, if I got some money, might become puffed up and mad after material opulence and so forget him. The statement of the Brahmana Sudama is correct. An ordinary man who is very poor and prays to the Lord and who somehow or other becomes richer in material opulence, immediately forgets his obligation to the Lord. Therefore, the Lord does not offer opulences to a devotee unless the devotee is thoroughly tested. Rather, if a neophyte devotee serves sincerely and at the same time wants material opulence, the Lord keeps him from obtaining it. This way, the learned Pramana grabs his own home. Changed. He saw that in place of his cottage, there were big palaces made of stones and jewels, glittering like the sun, moon, and rays of fire. Not only were there big palaces, but there were beautifully decorated parks in which many beautiful men and women were strolling. In those parks, there were nice lakes full of lotus flowers and beautiful leaves, and there were flocks of multicolored birds. Seeing the wonderful conversion of his native place, the Brahmana began to think to himself, how 
place belonged to me or someone else? If it is the same place where I used to live, then how is it so wonderfully changed? Well, the considering this, a group of beautiful men and women with features resembling those of the demigods, accompanied by musical chanters, approached to welcome him. All were singing auspicious songs. Example. Some auspicious tune. Tune or song. How would they sound? <laughs> the wife of the Brahmana was very glad on hearing the tidings of her husband's arrival, and with great haste she came out of the palace. The Brahmana's wife appeared so beautiful that it seemed as if the goddess of fortune herself had come to receive him. As soon as she saw her husband present before her, of joy fell from her eyes, and her voice became so choked up that she did not even address her husband. She simply closed her eyes in ecstasy. But with great love and affection, she bowed down before her husband, and within herself she thought of embracing him. She was fully decorated with a gold necklace and ornaments, and while standing among the maidservants, she appeared like a demigod's wife, just alighting from an airplane. The Brahmana was surprised to see his wife so beautiful, and in great affection and without saying a word, he entered the palace with her. When the Brahmana entered his personal apartment in the palace, he saw that it was not an apartment but the residence of the king of heaven. The palace was surrounded by many columns of jewels. The conches and the bedsteads were made of ivory. The couches and the bedsteads were made of ivory and bedecked with gold and jewels and the bedding was as white as the foam of milk and as soft as a lotus. There were many whisks hanging on golden rods, and many golden thrones with sitting cushions as soft as lotus flowers. In various places there were velvet and silken canopies with laces of pearls hanging all around. The structure of the building stood on excellent transparent marble with engravings made of emerald stones. All the women in the palace carried lamps made of valuable jewels. The flames of the jewels combined to produce a wonderfully brilliant light. When the Brahmana saw his position suddenly changed to one of opulence, and when he could not determine the cause for such sudden change, he began to consider very gravely how it had happened. He thus began to think, From the beginning of my life I have been extremely poverty-stricken, so what could be the cause of such great and sudden opulence? I do not find any cause other than the all-merciful glance of my friend, Lord Krishna, the chief of the Yadu dynasty. Certainly these are gifts of Lord Krishna's causeless mercy. The Lord is self-sufficient, the husband of the goddess of fortune, and thus he is always full with six opulences. He can understand the mind of his devotee, and he sumptuously fulfills the devotee's desires. All these are acts of my friend, Lord Krishna. My beautiful, dark friend, Krishna, is far more liberal in the cloud, which can fill the great ocean with water, without disturbing the cultivator with rain during the day. The cloud brings liberal rain at night just to satisfy him. <clears throat> and yet, when the cultivator wakes up in the morning, he thinks that he has, it has not rained enough. 
Similarly, the Lord fulfills the desire of everyone according to his position, yet one who is not in Krishna consciousness considers all the gifts of the Lord to be less than his desire. On the other hand, when the Lord receives a little thing in love and affection from his devotee, he considers an invaluable gift. I am a victim of this. I simply offered him a morsel of chipped rice, and in exchange he has given me opulences greater than those of the King of Heaven. What the devotee actually offers the Lord is not Lord, for he is self-sufficient. If the devotee offers something to the Lord, it acts for his interest, because whatever a devotee offers the Lord comes back in a quantity a million times greater than what was offered. One does not become a loser by giving to the Lord. One becomes a gainer by millions of times. The Brahmana, <clears throat> feeling great obligation to Krishna, thought, <clears throat> I pray, <clears throat> I pray to have the friendship of Lord Krishna and to engage in his service and to surrender fully unto him in love and affection, life after life. I do not want any opulence. I desire not to forget his service. I simply wish to be associated with his pure devotees. May my mind and activities be always engaged in his service. The unborn Supreme Personality of Godhead Krishna knows that many great personalities have fallen from their positions because of extravagant, extravagant opulence. Therefore, even when his devotee asks for some opulence from him, the Lord sometimes does not he is very cautious about his devotees because a devotee in an immature position of devotional service if offered great opulence from his position <clears throat> due to being in the material world. The Lord does not offer opulence. This is another manifestation the causeless mercy of the Lord upon his devotee. First interest is that the devotee not fall father, who does not give much wealth into the hand of his immature son, but who knows how to spend money, gives him the whole treasury house. The learned Brahmana thus concluded that whatever opulences he had received from the Lord should be used not for his extravagant sense gratification, service of the Lord. The Brahmana accepted his newly acquired opulence, but he did so in a spirit of renunciation, remaining unattached to sense gratification, and thus he lived very peacefully with his wife, enjoying all the facilities of opulence as the prasadam of the Lord. He enjoyed varieties of food by offering it to the Lord and then taking it as prasadam. Similarly, if by the grace O Lord, we get such opulences as material wealth, fame, power, education. It is our duty to consider that they are all gifts of the Lord and must be used for His service, not for our sense enjoyment. <clears throat> the learned Brahmana remained in that position, and thus his love and affection for Lord Krishna increased day after day. It did not deteriorate due to great opulence. 
Material opulence can be the cause of de degradation and also the cause of elevation according to the purposes for which it is used. If opulence is used for sense gratification, it is the cause of degradation. And if used for the service of the Lord, it is the cause of elevation. It is evident from Lord Krishna's dealings with Sudama Vipra that the Supreme Personality of Godhead is very, very much pleased with a person who possesses Brahminical qualities. A qualified Brahmin like Sudama Vipra is naturally a devotee of Lord Krishna. Therefore it is said, Brahmano Vaishnava. A Brahmana is a Vaishnava. Or sometimes it is said, Brahmana Pandita. Pandita means a highly learned person. A Brahmana cannot be foolish or uneducated. Therefore, there are two divisions of Brahmanas, namely Vaishnavas and Panditas. Those who are simply learned are Pandits, but not yet devotees of the Lord or Vaishnavas. Lord Krishna is not especially pleased with them. Simply the qualification of being a learned Brahmana is not sufficient to attract the Supreme Personality of Godhead. Not only must a Brahmana be well qualified according to the requirements stated in scriptures, the Srimad Bhagavad Gita and Srimad Bhagavatam, but at the same time he must be a devotee of Lord Krishna. The vivid example he was a qualified Brahmana, unattached to all sorts of material sense enjoyment, and at the same time he was a great devotee of Lord Krishna. Lord Krishna, the enjoyer of all sacrifices and penances, is very fond of a Brahmana like Sudama Vipra. And as we have seen by the actual behavior of Lord Krishna, how much he adores such a Brahmana. Therefore, the ideal stage of human perfection is to become a Brahmana Vaishnava like Sudama Vipra. Sudama Vipra realized that although Lord Krishna is unconquerable, he nevertheless agrees to be conquered by his devotees. He realized how kind Lord Krishna was to him, and he was always in trance, constantly thinking of Krishna. Constant association with Lord Krishna, whatever darkness of material contamination remained within his heart was completely cleared away, and very shortly he was transferred to the spiritual world kingdom which is the goal of all saintly persons in the perfectional stage of life. Shukadeva Goswami has stated that all persons who hear this history of Sudama Vipra and Lord Krishna will know how affectionate Lord Krishna is to Brahmana devotees like Sudama. <clears throat> Therefore, any history gradually becomes as qualified as Sudama Vipra and he is thus transferred to the spiritual kingdom of Lord Krishna. Thus end the Bhaktivedanta purport of 81st chapter of Krishna, the Brahmana Sudama, blessed by Lord Krishna. Natchari Armarman, Natchari Armarman, Natchari Armarman, hey, Natchari Armarman, Natchari Armarman, Natchari Armarman, Natchari Armarman.